Today at the New Indian, we have with us Lieutenant General Arun Sahani, a decorated soldier who retired as the Commander-in-Chief of one of the commands in the Western Borders. Earlier, he also commanded uh, the highest or probably the largest corps in the Northeast. Welcome to Reason where we get to the reason behind the issues that concern you. Welcome, General. Thank you very much, Aarti. Delighted to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, let's begin this conversation with our immediate neighborhood. And uh, who would know it better than you? Because you served on, the bo on both frontiers, the Western and the Eastern. I would like to start with China. We have had a standoff with China along the line of actual control. After the standoff, we have somewhere managed to come to a certain truce. But do you foresee this truce as a stable and a long prevailing truce? Do you foresee more confrontations, maybe not in the conventional realm, probably in the subconventional or perhaps asymmetrical? Do you see peace with China as a permanent state of affairs? I think relations between India and China in the long run will have to come to a state of uh, an equilibrium where there would be uh, confrontation and strife along the borders. But you would also find that your economic linkages would still remain reasonably robust till the time Atmanirbhar Bharat really comes into being. Uh, the issue of threat from China. Let me tell you two areas where they've really gained, I think, one of the reasons for the uh, US-China trade war was the fact of the technology advancement that China had achieved, which they were, was not expected to be in the pace and speed and the level that they have. And I think that is where the difference comes in as far as the military and the security dimension comes in. His capability of space power which gives him the capacity of the, what we talk, ISR capability, that is intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. He has the capacity to do it much more, more intensely with great amount of transparency than maybe we can as of now, because we have limited resources. Though we are members of the Five Eyes or associated with the Five Eyes, you would still find uh, you are not really a, a full-time member, but yes, you would get relevant information that you demand, but you don't have a 24-7 eyes on the areas on activities which China is doing. So the ISR is one area that he has gained. His technology has also given him this great capacity of being able to wage non-contact war. And non-contact is in two ways. One is in the kinetic domain, one is in the non-kinetic domain. If you see the kinetic domain, I mean the kind of firepower and resources that he has created, his missiles, his uh, basically his rocket forces, we also have that, but the quantum is much larger in his case. He has the capacity to hit you from far off places without actually coming into a hand-to-hand -hand contact at the line of actual control as it stands today in Ladakh. And maybe the identified LAC as it exists in areas which are not central sector, but say in the eastern half of our country. But what he, and in the non-kinetic space, cyber warfare, I mean, he has become the master of espionage. He has become the master of being able to intrude and develop that technology to the level to be able to intrude and 
attack your national critical infrastructure which can make a difference on your defense preparedness or when you're carrying out war in your capacity to build up to carry out wage war to be able to electronically interdict the resources that you have which gives you the advantage of being able to remain seamlessly connected so i think in those realms he's gained advantage now do we see it growing further in my personal view though there are a lot of analysts in the western world who've been predicting that china is may not go to taiwan may continue to sort of develop operations and be a little more uh, i would say aggressive on the indian front my reading is like this that he he's not letting the border issue die down One so the all the disputes on mcmohan lines will stay you're absolutely right see tell i mean my reading is that as long as you control the mind of the tibetan people he needs some leverages to keep you on the run and i think he'd be more than happy to have india as a second rate cousin in the neighborhood than having it also emerging as a but are we really a, a rival to china because they are far ahead they I, are almost in you know, a 20 trillion economy we are just 3.5 trillion economy we don't have the military power that china has we don't have the economic power that china has so where is the competition we are very very I I think it's I think there's one great thing which I heard in one of the interviews and which I quite believe now when I look back in and it was by one of these foreign ambassadors I think most probably Mr Sham Saran had talked about uh, he mentioned this issue about power hierarchical attitude of the Chinese the power hierarchy means that if i am economically and strategically and uh, militarily stronger than you and you are lower than me then i'm sorry my relationship with you is in a hierarchical manner so when i sit across the table it's not a bilateral give and take it is only give from our it's side a yeah it's a give from our side the lower member of the equation and it is take from the bigger member of the equation so as long as this power hierarchical thing remains but i think if you reduce the economic gap the kind the way our country is moving maybe another 5 years down the line and maybe the kind of regressiveness that has happened now in china maybe the differences won't be so uh, so pronounced he will have an advantage undoubtedly because he is looking at competing with the united states of america we are not looking at competing on the global uh, platform we are saying the indian civilizational ethos have peace and tranquility around us let's all grow together and in that environment china has its own uh, line of thinking and its own axe to grind Con- countries like north korea pakistan have been the proxies for him to be able to see how why is part. it why is it so difficult for the world to accept that china has arrived hasn't it really arrived i think today absolutely anybody who says the rise of china is talking in uh, well is hoping for the best but i think today china has arrived on the international scene undoubtedly today it is the second largest economy it has military power which is right across i mean it matches that of the americans at least in the naval fleet as far as it's concerned so are you then saying that we have actually entered cold war 2.0 where us nato western bloc on the one side and china on the other side or are we talking about multilateralism as the government of india's position is or in real terms it's just two poles I I really I, I think going back to the old cold war era I don't think is going to happen now. 
that, that was a different world. You had two separate blocks which had everything separate. You had your own uh, area of influence, the area of control. You had your own parallel industries which developed and looked after your interests. So there was a competition in the two blocks as such. I don't think that's happening. Just look at India-China. I mean, we've cut off all relationships. But our trade has grown by 30 billion in the last two years. Yeah. Yes. And from 81 billion, you're but talking about 110, 111. There's a trade we, deficit, in fact, of 100 dollars. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. You're right. So, billion dollars. I mean, I'll leave that to the economists to disguise yes. how the debate goes. But the issue is that I think a polycentric world order is what is going to come out. You have your own areas of influence. But then let me bring you back to what you said. You said that right now it's not a relationship of equals where India can actually bargain with China. Right now the relationship is that China is going to dictate the terms and we will have to obey because we, they believe in that hierarchy of power. So, my question is this, apart from the military and economic might that they have, the leverage that they have, do they also have the geographical leverage over India? Yeah, today what you're talking about, geoengineering of the climatic conditions, the, the, the natural resources. You are, he is an upper riparian as we are a lower riparian to him, like we are an upper riparian to Bangladesh. So I think the, the control of water resources, the climatic changes that he's trying to create in his own environment, as he says, by 2025, he's looking at, I mean, that's again part of the hybrid warfare. He wants to vegetate and be able to control the, uh, the kind of uh, rainfall and monsoons in areas by cloud seeding in different parts of the country at different times. Look at the impact it's going to have on people like us here. The, the Himalayan boundary, uh, I mean, I'll, let me take you back to one example. Uh, I remember going to, Tok uh, to Beijing in 2009 and the, the pollution levels were extremely high. This is just before the Beijing Olympics, about a year, year and a half before that. What they did is they cut down, shut down all their plants. They started cutting trees and teak woods and various other elements from Indonesia. So in the far, I mean, when you look at geographically, it was far placed. However, you go back to last year, in 2021, for the first time, pollution levels in Beijing went up. Why did it happen? Because trees cut there had an impact on the overall climatic conditions. So you would again found pollution here. So today, any kind of geoengineering with climatic and natural resources will have an impact on the neighboring countries. In some, so, so what I'm saying is that areas where he's trying to sort of fester his own, uh, look after his own interests, is going to have a drastic impact on countries who are in the neighborhood. And it will naturally automatically have an impact uh, on the climate, uh, I mean, the climate change activities that are going on, the global warming and all those activities that are happening, which we are talking about. So may I just put it that China's growth economically uh, at the current state, maybe the status quo, the balance is not uh, is heavily weighed in favor of China. But it doesn't mean that he has the military strength to be able to do and occupy areas. He can create like he is creating nuisance value. We can't become part of the NSG, National Suppliers Group, because he doesn't want to allow you. He doesn't want the expansion of the Security Council because he doesn't want India to come on the high seat. So yeah, that kind of problem will happen in the political, diplomatic, economic sphere where he will control stakes. But today to come as a soldier militarily, he has these advantages, but we have one of our greatest advantages. The terrain that we operate in, the kind of exposure and training that the country has, mountains support and help the defender more than the attacker.
I don't think he's psychologically oriented to take attrition warfare to a level where he sees his own dead bodies coming back to the country and making a difference in the current uh, socio-political environment that he's created. And just to go back to Galwan, he refused to talk about uh, any of the casualties that happened. But finally, we've seen over a period of time that three or four people were decorated. We had the mainstay or the iconic figure in the last party conference that happened last year. They suddenly bought out the Galwan hero they talked about. So they have problems. I think attrition warfare they can't come across because I think we are very well placed. Uh, so anybody who draws parallels to 1962 is talking about India, which was in 47 and 2022. I don't think there is a comparison of sorts at all. So do you foresee China engaging India militarily, perhaps in skirmishes and not in uh, escalated warfare? Do you foresee Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like you just had this last one which happened in Arunachal. We, we have these areas where the whole boundary is disputed. They're refusing to go ahead. And as you're aware, what happened in 2001-2002, we exchanged maps of the central sector. So fortunately, neither China has made any belligerent moves in those areas, nor have we done anything to violate those identified conditions of calm and peace that were supposed to be maintained there. But Ladakh and uh, Arunachal, he's keeping the pot boiling. It'll continue to remain this. We'll have to remain alert. Just to give you an example, this recent skirmish that happened is because he's violated and started again developing uh, linkages or improving his border infrastructure and road connectivity along the border in Sikkim, opposite Sikkim, which has a repercussion on us and our Siliguri corridor. So we've had up all, the, the minute that happened, we've taken uh, proactive defensive actions. We also had a high state of alert and that's why his last calling in Arunachal fell flat. He actually did not perceive the kind of reaction and the kind of forces that we would be able to generate in the timeline that we did. And he naturally had to take back a bloody face. So he's quite clear, attrition warfare I don't think is the area that China wants to go. Yeah, I, so fortunately the status quo... So it will be just low intensity... Yeah, so it's something like what we have got with Pakistan as of now. Yes. The only problem is strain on the uh, capacities and capabilities of the army. Uh, and the armed forces, now I won't say the army, but army in particular because on the defensive forces, uh, that will go up because as you are aware, we have these whole medical issues coming up. If you operate at high altitudes, you need to give our troops a gap of about six to eight years. Uh, that gap is reducing because of our commitments to Siachen, to Leh Ladakh, that whole area. Look at some of the high altitude areas in Sikkim and in the Center and the eastern sector. So we have a problem. So the armed forces are going to get stretched. And I'm sure a country like India is no longer, a, it's not a banana republic. I'm sure the government will come up with enough means and measures to ensure that these challenges are tackled well. We've seen that happening with the emergency pass. So yes. to break the bureaucratic structure of our uh, acquisition, the Prime Minister has been extremely uh, perceptive in allowing the armed forces to do emergency pass, not once, not twice, but third time now so that you meet your immediate requirement. So I'm sure with the current political hierarchy, but we'll be all right. Now, now let's, let's bring in Pakistan into the equation because uh, even as uh, Pakistan right now is economically collapsing, we also know that uh, Pakistan's CPEC did not turn out to be all that great oh, as yeah. it was True. being claimed to. Now, even as Pakistan is militarily you know, much weaker than India, but it has continued its 
as you rightly pointed out, that China is going to do exactly what Pakistan, keep the pot boiling. Do you foresee Pakistan and China coming together through perhaps the CPEC or through perhaps militarily, we don't know. Do you, do you foresee two-front war with Pakistan and China, even as Pakistan does not really have that economic capacity to go for a war with India? Let me say that uh, the system which we talked about earlier when we looked at uh, all the conflicts that have happened with Pakistan, it was at a time and space, including 71 war, to ensure that the passes on the northern side were blocked so that there was no problems or no threat from the Chinese front. Well, that situation has changed now. So whenever you go across for a war, you have an active front which you will have to defend. Whether the probability of China coming in physically in, in support of Pakistan, my reading is it will not happen. Pakistan, yes, coming and fiddling around and keeping a pot boiling for us. When China is, uh, if we do have some kind of a contact conventional attrition warfare with them, yes, Pakistan will keep the pot boiling. It's like wanting to please your master, ki aap tang, you're in a problem, so let me support you. But I don't think China, in, in, a, in, in any such situation, would like to come to the aid. What it will do is what happened in 71. I, there was a threat in being of China, the, seven, the, uh, the Pacific fleet came in, the 7th fleet arrived of the US, sat on our doorstep. So these kind of political, diplomatic pressures in international forums and maybe physically by moving troops so that you cannot remove troops from the eastern so sector will happen. So Pakistan essentially has just the nuisance value. Absolutely, it will I just... don't think we should worry too much about it. Now, you uh, pointed out Indo-Pacific. What is India's strategy in Indo-Pacific? Do you think China has absolutely no strategic advantage in the, in the Indo-Pacific given that NATO, this whole idea of COD has emerged in the last uh, few years? Do you think China can counter this and China can develop a greater advantage, greater strategic depth in Indo-Pacific? See, today I think it would be foolhardy if I had to, it would literally be like an ostrich putting his head down in the sand. Of course, China has made gains tremendously. I mean, he managed to get Tota. maybe he's lost space today in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, when I look at the kind of linkages he's developed in for his oil and trade from Kunming into Myanmar, well, he has those advantages. He has the Bay of Bengal openings as well, which he's been trying. He's been trying the Krai route through uh, the, the, the uh, through Vietnam and come into the Bangladesh, but that hasn't worked, or through Thailand, but this has worked. He has a foothold. Uh, the Maldives will today are pro-India, but can always, uh, we've gone through a phase where they've been anti-India. So, well, there are problems. But what you have to look at is a bigger thing. He's got a Djibouti base. He's done so much of economic leveraging in the African continent along the east coast of Africa. All those countries are indebted to for the kind of stuff that they have, he's provided them in economic uh, wherewithal. So, getting places, having footholds there and having an area of influence is highly there. I mean, he has developed that capacity. So, what I would say is that though he has the numerical figures which are touted by 
strategic analyst where he seems to have crossed the number of ships that US has. But to develop the capacity to fight warfare like this across what the American people have done or the American naval forces have achieved or the armed forces have achieved will take a lot of time. So China is still far away from being a dominating sea power, a maritime power where he can influence operations. I think what he can do is within the South China Sea, East China Sea, breaking the first island chain, getting into the second island chain, using this A to AD theory of his to be able to hit Guam, which is a US base. All these are areas where he's getting stronger and stronger. He's and there, there, it's almost a vacuum. There is no counter to China. See, today I think, uh, in my reading, America lost by uh, lost a lot of space by allowing uh, uh, giving up of his bases in Philippines when it did. And now I think there are talks again, not really of the Clark Air Base coming up in the same form, but again there are talks that they would get uh, through this collaborative security arrangement which America is following now of the something like what the Quad is that there are there or, or sorry by the treaties that he's done with us. Uh, of, of logistic support. Don't you see that America has actually withdrawn from Asia and it's almost handed over Asia to China, given the fact that it withdrew from Afghanistan. Absolutely, withdrew I its bases from Philippines. I, I, I think I, I think with the changing equation with the, in the European uh, or the Atlantic uh, subregion, the developed world, as they say, the Europe and and the Russian belt, which is there. I think with this great focus on Russia, they've lost out on two things. They've forced Russia to fall in, to closer to China. And because of the uh, asymmetrical advantage that China today has economically more than Russia has, and, and because of its clout that it enjoys otherwise in the international forum, you, you would find that this whole Eurasian hinterland or heartland that was what used to be talked about Mackinder's theory, mm -hmm. has been handed over to them but the minute China, the US left its, uh, as I say, its strategic linkages in, in the Middle East. You're seeing Saudi Arabia moving out and being independent in its own manner of engagement. I think it's lost space. It lost space initially in what is now the South China Sea, East China Sea area. It's lost space out here. Collaborative security has a great advantage if you're talking about hosting like something like a military alliance of NATO. I don't see the Quad coming into that form at all. But they, they came up with AUKUS. Yeah, yeah. so AUKUS is there. AUKUS is down long. It's another 8-10 years away. I mean, before the nuclear submarines come in and Australia can become a power where it can show influence outside. The SDF in Japan has been revoked. They're going in for offensive weapon system. But that'll still take time. So I don't think that's going to mature in an area. So then you are acknowledging that there is a iron curtain developing in the world. And this yeah. Asian bloc is like completely China. I, 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 I would say the trilateral, bilaterals, multilateral forums will have a space. Uh, you will have uh, uh, an umbrella where liberal democracies may not agree with uh, the kind of line of thinking what China and Russia have today in their uh, midst or with what North Korea has. But then economic interest will permeate through this whole globalized and interconnected world. You but might China have will also at the same time ensure that they contain India. I think he, he's happier to keep us bottled up and be a second-rate citizen than be a, a one-and-a-half time. I mean, a grow-up in stature to be a voice to reckon in a forum. 
I think today as of now, that's why I think India is the greatest debate that we keep having in most of a strategic realm, which you are yourself part of, is that you see that uh, the awareness level of allowing ourselves today to become part of the rule-making bodies of the world. Yeah? That's what we want the next future global order to be, instead of just being the people who are dictated terms. I mean, our relationship with Russia remain critical for one reason, that whatever you might say, the Russian uh, veto in the Security Council is still a veto power, which none of us have it. Uh, so, the, the, there is a developing trust with America, but there is still not, uh, I mean, we can't, we can't sort of put our chips in the bag with them totally. But then, but then the US policy, uh, you know, by focusing on Ukraine and Russia, as you rightly pointed out, has brought Russia and China closer. So, how far do you think Russia will come to India's defense if China keeps building pressure on India on McMahon line? Let me put it like this, that Russia will always have a leverage on China. And I think when the chips come down, uh, Russia in its own manner will support us in the current dispensation. What will happen five years from now, I can't say. But in the current state of affair, I'm quite sure uh, Russia does play a role, uh, whether it's behind the scenes, uh, to ensure that there is a rapprochement with China to an extent. That's my reading. I'm not in the government, so I really can't say whether it's happening. But I, I, but I have a feeling for sure that there is a certain amount of engagement that happens, which is always for pro-India. So he'll ma maintain a balance. And I think we've done well to keep our strategic autonomy alive in the manner that's happened in this whole chaos. Or it's still happening, but we managed to keep our cells above it, which of course has polarized the Western world and the Western media, whether it's the BBC pictures or the articles in Washington Times or it's in New York Times, we'll keep finding that the current government will keep getting slashed on the head or wrapped on you the You made knuckles. a very pertinent point that India, no matter what, can defend itself militarily on the Eastern Front and the Western Front. Uh, there may be skirmishes, there may be low intensity conflicts with China. But then militarily we are equipped and Prime Minister Modi's policies are going to equip militarily even more. But my point is this, what are the other areas where China can corner India apart from you know, military? military? You know, I think one great thing that we started is looking at the cyber security issues. I think that's coming in in a big way. Uh, we still haven't been able to resolve, uh, to break the silos that exist. Uh, the armed forces are looking at a particular thing. You've got the Ministry of Defense has its own vertical. The NTRO has its own. So there are different organs who are dealing in cyber security, which I think needs to be harmonized at some level. So to give you an example, how, do you, uh, how, I, how can you be aggressive in the cyber domain? The cyber domain you can remain aggressive is by creating vulnerabilities in systems which exist in the enemy side. Uh, which are, I mean, or your adversary, I won't say the enemy, but say the adversary's, adversary's systems. So that at the time when you want to, you can use that uh, leverage to create and pass, pass messages or what is there, give signaling of what your intentions are. Now those things can only be done when there is co-jointed and synergize uh, impact from my side. If I work in silos, sensitivity that you might have created while creating my own, I might disrupt yours, which I'm sure would be happening. I mean, I'm going as a layman. I'm not really a 
technical uh, 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 cyber warrior as such. But from whatever little understanding that I have as a user at that space, this is creating problems of those kind. Today, when you look at it, India today gets, as the, I mean, the last figure that I was told is not the number of cyber attacks and leave ransomware attacks out. But you had something to the tune of about 30 to 40 high intensity attacks. What does that mean? That means suddenly your AT system has, ATC in a particular airport has got impacted. We've overcome it in half an hour, 40 minutes. But these are all indicators of the fact that somebody outside can vector your system to try and create a disruption in this digital But you're saying we, we are getting prepared for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we have. I think so we've started the right thing. Uh, we have greater emphasis given on that. There is greater realization at all levels. But unfortunately, what happens is cyber domain is for a younger generation. Unfortunately, policymakers are all old fogies like us <laughs> who do not understand that domain well enough to be able to make policies which are current with the changing dynamics. So I feel that that gap is getting bridged, there's undoubtedly. But I'm just saying this is on the lighter plane. I keep saying I'm mentoring one startup. You inside. also mentioned geographical engineering, climate warfare. Geoengineering. Geoengineering. What can happen in that front? See, today I think one is the upper riparian and lower riparian. If by stories of uh, people who talk about the conspiracy books are out on that, about how China is making the Xinjiang the future semiconductor hub for himself. And that's how he's bought all these rare earths from different parts of the world and dumped them in those areas. He requires tremendous amount of water. So in water, if he starts diverting a large amount of resources, it'll have an impact on the river uh, systems that flow into India and flow downwards. How much percentage may be marginal in certain cases? Will the Brahmaputra be affected by what he is doing in Meto? Uh, I mean, there are debatable figures, but my experience of having commanded that area and knowing the truth, I mean, the, currently the upper Himalayan, the, the Brahmaputra really gets about 15-20% of water, really speaking, from the old Sangpo of theirs, which comes into India as Loeth. But we have our upper reaches of the Himalayans and our river line which feed in the rest of the water. So you will get impacted, but how drastically? No. I think climate change will make a difference. I'm, I'm, my worry is this whole story of cloud engineering, monsoons and waters where he wants to create greater agrarian kind of areas for himself, get them more fertile, will create a problem for sure. Because that will have a repercussion on the rest of the monsoons across the world, yeah, both the northeast and the southwest monsoons. So that will make a difference. If he's looking at... And we won't have any advantage, we won't have any counter preparedness for that. Let me put it like this, I, I, I look after a climate change think tank, so I can talk a bit about this. Uh, I think Bangladesh has been very uh, uh, forward-looking uh, in taking out these two plans called Delta Plan and Mujib Plan 2030. And that's one of the greatest security challenges for India, which I keep voicing in a lot of public uh, spaces where we engage, uh, is the issue that they've identified that in the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to have 40 million climate migrants because of the loss of land, because rising sea levels and global warming. Where do these people go? So what is that requiring? That is requiring for in the adaptation and mitigation, engineering tools to try and grow crops in this semi-saline water so that you can still meet the food security impact. Imagine that migration of 40 million refugees in, in the next 10, 15, 20 years that happen, where can they go? They have to come to India. If it comes to India, what kind of pressures does it create? Or are they going to Myanmar? What kind of pressures do they create? Do you foresee uh, Pakistani refugees coming into India? I mean, given the, the fact what that... what is happening in Sarkar... Yeah, you're right. The last floods have 
devastated them and pakistan is actually a good, big worry for us maybe for our social uh, challenges that exist more than the security challenges i look at today because when you look at it his economy is so structurally weak that he cannot come out without living on being bail out packages from various friends and i mean and international agencies structurally he's sort of eaten that whole st- structure off so i don't know how is he going to structurally reengineer until the armed forces controls the major stake in the cu- running of that country you got a problem yeah i mean with the taliban there on the border that's active they looking at wanting to equal india on every front and now that fight on bcci and icc of going on whether the asia cup should be held in pakistan yes. i'm just giving you so look at these so you're going to find other kind of factors which are going to create problems so we we have a worry that uh, i think the break up of the east european countries like yugoslavia really left and created this great migrant problem in europe tomorrow a fact uh, a fractionalization of pakistan if it happens because of its internal dissensions and nobody i mean we really don't need anybody to come and do it they're on their path of self destruction whether it happens in 10 years 15 years or 30 years i won't be able to predict but well the way they are going they're creating enough issues for polarization within their own societies and with this climate change impact of floods and economic uh, mayhem that is being created it's fueling the gap of the international terrorist organizations or what we are suffering in our country but what it is going to do is this breakup will have an impact in the nations which are all around it that brings me to terrorism you handle counter terrorism in kashmir as well as northeast do you see terror changing in its form and nature do you think uh, there will be new forms of terror terrorism is no longer just left in the kinetic domain of what we see in kashmir which we used to talk or in northeast which is what we in the army were used to or what we saw in ltt when i was in oppavan when we dealt in sri lanka so those are different areas that that is happening the funding systems are changing the global linkages amongst various terrorist terror groups is an area of concern and as you are aware all terrorist organizations thrive on identity of the leadership a set of leadership when it gets removed there will be time before which it grows again till you de- uh, till you address the endemic problem which generates that pro- uh, that chaos india is a multiracial multi uh, religious uh, organization and in a country which is developing of 130 now well, 132 billion people yeah. we've got a problem of our own kind yeah there will be people between the haves and the haves not how, however much the government does those have nots will always be open to social engineering and those social engineering will have an impact on the security internal security dynamic that's the area we need to address where we need to get more robust organizations where we need people within the society and this is where i feel is the area where india should work on our civil society organizations have to become strong enough to give and be the anchors of internal security structures i mean the part of the internal security structure that would assist because they are the ones when today when you talk about uh, what do you talk about looking at uh, changing the mindset of people who have already got ingrained in the wrong thing how do you do that you get academics you get psychologists you get local religious leaders who then sort of come together and form a structure and an organization which engages with these people who have got sort of polarized or misguided youth and get them back into our side so i think we will have to start looking at that in our country terror in the form that it existed in the valley or in the northeast uh, may not really grow in that form but yes 
what we talk about a proxy war uh, continuing in India with the fertile ground in Afghanistan and Pakistan for terror outfits, the linkages that happen. We'll have to get more and more, uh, I think, uh, our inch services and our surveillance and intelligence capabilities, both external and internal, will have to be really robust to be able to ensure that we can nip these in the bud before they really become a problem and fester as a wound. That's how I would see. The government of India in its recent budget actually increased the defense budget. Uh, what does it indicate? And also, uh, do you think India can become self-reliant, self-dependent in arms production and actually having the technology that the West has or even China has? I think one of the greatest things that Ch uh, America realized uh, with the current state of our relationships in the geostrategic, geopolitical realm has been that uh, one of the areas which is denying India was high technology. And so this recent visit of the NSA brings to fore that they are willing to now share and ensure that you get those technologies which will bring you to be able to have state-of-art capabilities within your systems. Uh, as I said, no country can become 100% self-reliant on weapons and system. But I think if key weapon systems are produced by you, Technologies are harnessed which have a military or a dual-use capability which are provided and available within the country. India is rich enough as a nation-state to be able to produce and meet the requirements in a confrontation where you tend to be, if you are isolated for whatever reason by some people of the world. So you will not really be uh, waiting for, uh, yeah, for help from people in those areas. We are noticing that with our Russian equipment. And today, so, so we have, we, the good part is that in the last about 20, uh, 15 odd years, 20 years, a large amount of spare parts which were there for Russian equipment has started getting manufactured in India. So maybe we are actually giving them, we are giving, providing those back to Russia and Ukraine if they want it from us, if they want it. I mean, if, but the government policy does not exist. Yeah, it has put a clamp on that. But so, so we have developed that. Now I think we need to go to the next stage. And the minute you start making platforms in your country, just to give an example, the C-295 coming, there is, there is going to be a parallel uh, aviation industry in the private world and in the uh, public space. This new helicopter factory with the Prime Minister's inaugurated gives you that a space of reducing the load on HAL from just being looking at all type of aerial platforms to two separate platforms under two separate public organizations or publicly guarded and supported organizations and you've got the private sector coming in. Guns are being manufactured now. So once the guns are manufactured, the ecosystem will develop over a period of time. We've already made rocket launchers, we already make missiles. We are all right. The ammunition we can manage. Where we were losing out on the ISR today, we've already got companies who are producing great amount of electro-optical systems which are out here. We haven't still been able to refine the area of art, which is linked to chips. And maybe thank God uh, that we're getting the semiconductor industry coming in. So it's a slow process. Uh, the iPhone has finally moved some of its portions here, has promised after the first delivery, which was done by Tata's, has come to the conclusion, yes, it'll give the next i15 if it happens to be made partly in India. So I think we are moving. It will happen. And as I say, I, I'm a firm believer it's going to be a polycentric world order and not really a polarized bipolar or a multipolar because the link, economic linkages will still exist. If today we are still getting 80 or well 60-70% of our APIs for our health products, maybe over another 5-10 years with the current policies of PLI schemes, we will suddenly find that maybe our dependence will be only 20 or 30. And we don't have to become zero, 
he also needs to survive. So he'll require the linkage as much as I do. But then it no longer remains a political or a military leverage in his hands to be able to turn on you. 15-20% engagements will be alright. I mean, I think it'll carry on. It'll, it'll work out in its own space. So I think the country by saying Atman Nirbhar means you will cut down the leverages which other nations have today on India for our resources that we require for the well-being of our uh, people. That's the way we go. Do, do you think that nuclear wars are now a passe? They're not in the strategic realm anymore? I, I, see, as far as South Asia is concerned, it was always in the political space. I don't think it was a strategic space. What you saw happening in the uh, uh, in the Warsaw NATO context, the US now say Russia context, was uh, a war of sorts where it had moved from a tactical sphere of TNWs on the battlefield of Europe. Uh, then you had the MICR and all these kind of regimes that came in to ensure that those weapons were used only in the European space and not in, couldn't hit Soviet Union or, or Russia and couldn't hit the USA. I mean, it was very segregated. You fight and you kill yourself there if you want to use the nuclear weapon. That era passed in that mad strategy. It still remains a strategic uh, tool as far as nation states. And we've seen uh, Russia to an extent implying in times, at times being read uh, wrongly or uh, for, for a purpose by the Western media to talk about him trying to wage a nuclear war. And anyway, we don't have to go too far. If you go to our Hindi channels, we are at the brink of a nuclear war as far as they're concerned. <laughs> but every evening they're fighting that the, the mayhem is around, around the corner. But I don't think it's true. Uh, what I would say is it will remain a tool of deterrence. Uh, and uh, I think where we need to improve ourselves is uh, we need to create more ambiguity as far as our nuclear policy is concerned, leave it in the realm of the political space. And I think we've been very mature in the way we've tackled this noise from Pakistan of TNWs and haven't really gone that way ourselves because we feel that that's, it's more hype than uh, material because we don't want that to come into a military sphere. It remains in the political sphere, used as deterrence and ensures the balance is retained. And I think the second thing that we need to do is we need to improve our signaling capabilities in this whole space. Uh, people should know when we are angry and within certain times, uh, this is a tool. So what Pakistan uses against us uh, is also a leverage that we can uh, think of using against China, whether we look at it if we want to. But I feel it remains in the political space, makes great sense for us, uh, for a developed part of the world where the density of population is so heavy that uh, the devastation of Nagasaki and Hiroshima would be uh, not even a trailer to what can happen out in this part of the world. So I think we're better off living in that space. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Aarti, thank you very much. Thank you.